Welcome to the Open Up Cricket podcast. We're talking sport, fitness and mental health. This episode is one where we're going to be looking at the idea of adversity and I'm joined by someone who I've spent time with in the UK um, in partnership where we did sessions looking at peak performance and looking at mental skills. So the guy who's joined me today is Tom Scolle from Cricket Mentoring and rather than Tom who has his own excellent podcast asking other people questions I'm actually going to be putting him on the spot with a few things so first of all great to join you today Tom thanks mate thanks for having me so we've got two things that we're going to going to chat about you and use your experience from both sides of the game really um we'll talk about how your your route to playing first to to being a first class cricketer and then your route out of it to now what um I've come to know you through is the enterprise of, of cricket mentoring which as far as I can tell, and, and others who have engaged with it, is a pretty unique and different way of approaching cricket coaching, as we'll, we'll unpick a little bit here. So, first things first, what it, it, it's a, when I first saw your name, in fact, when I got an email from uh, Andrew Walton introducing us, I assumed, because your background had been with Middlesex, that I was going to be speaking to someone from the south of England. Um, and then when I finally heard your voice, I was a little bit taken aback. So what was your route to growing up in Australia to then playing your first-class cricket, being your professional in uh, in London, in England? How did that come about? Well, I grew up in central Australia in a little town called Alice Springs, and I um, was extremely um, passionate about cricket, loved the game, and I decided at about 13 that I wanted to try and play cricket for Australia one day, and I wanted to play professionally, and... Um, So from about that age, I thought that as soon as I could, I would leave Alice Springs because there was no pathway to professional cricket and um, international cricket there. So um, a week before I turned 18, uh, a a few days after my final year 12 school exams, I left Alice Springs to pursue my cricket and I moved over to Perth, where we are today. Um, And I was a a young guy with, with big dreams and no limiting beliefs, I suppose, about what was possible. And I was dreaming of playing for Australia but uh, and, and also for Western Australia. But after a couple of years um, of playing grade cricket at Melville Cricket Club, um, I was had a friend. Um, it was actually uh, Dimmy Mascarenas' younger brother, Shannon. Dimmy played a bit for England and, and he was heavily involved at Melville. And Shannon said, why don't you go and play in England? Um, you do really well over there. And after some discussion, I said, oh, yeah, my dad's got a British passport. And then that sort of made my, my good mate Shannon Cuppy, he sort of said, get your British passport, you can get one, get, get it sorted, and who knows, you could play professionally in England. That's what Dimmer did. D- Dimmy was born in England but lived his childhood in Australia but then went back to England to play professionally and obviously had a very successful career. So um, at 20, I, I sort of got my passport and I went over to play league cricket in the UK and I, I, I landed at um, East Coast Cricket Club in the Middlesex League and that was due to... Um, a teammate of mine at Melville, Luke Towers, who had been there the year before, and he said, Skulls, I think you should go. They're a great group, uh, great group of guys, great club, great ground, great league. And then he said to East Coast, I think I've got the right overseas for you for next year. So it was 2008. I was 20 years old, and I landed at East Coast, and I had a, had a really good year. Um, 
I think I came second in the most runs for the year. I got three hundreds and and played quite well. And I was really hopeful of of things going further with Middlesex. I, but at the same time, I was I was still hoping that things would work out in Australia because I was always going to go back to Australia to play in the the, the Wacker um, comp that following season and. Um, and then I came back to Perth, and again I did okay, but didn't sort of put my name in lights. And and there were guys in in WA cricket and Western Australia cricket that were getting opportunities because they'd been in the WA underage system, and obviously I hadn't. So I felt like I had to sort of get a lot more runs than some of those other guys who were playing second eleven games or had rookie contracts. Um, and then I decided to go back to England again, and I was I was sort of weighing up whether I'd go back to East Coast or I'd try somewhere new and. Um, after a lot of sort of um, toing and froing, I decided to go back to Eastcote, and then I was um, told I'd get a trial with Middlesex that year on the back of what I'd done the year before. And um, I, it wasn't until the last game of that 2009 season, the very last um, second eleven game, it was a friendly. Um, Middlesex again. I had an, a good season in the league cricket with with um, Eastcote, and Middlesex um, said, "Oh, we want you to come and trial in this friendly game against Gloucestershire." Uh, one-day game at um, the county ground in Bristol. And so went up there. It was a rain-affected game. Um, and being the last game of the year, a lot of the guys were tired and couldn't really be bothered. But we ended up, there was questions about it, there was sort of talk about it being called off. But in the end, we played. It was a 26-over side game. And uh, Gloucester batted first. I think they scored about 136 or so. Not a big score. Um, 2020 cricket back in 2009 was obviously a thing, but not as highly um, focused on as it is now. And we walked out to bat, myself and a guy called Steve Selwood. He was a former Derbyshire player, another guy doing well in the Middlesex League at the time. And, and we sort of had nothing to lose. And, and as it turned out, I, I hit 24 off the first over. Um, David Payne was bowling, who, who's had a good career for Gloucester, still playing now. And, and I ended up with 66 off 33 balls. And all of a sudden, I got a call from Richard Scott, who was the first team coach at the time, saying come and have a meeting at Uxbridge next week and, and then he invited me to come back the following year for a proper trial and do pre-season with the, with the county and that was really exciting. I went back to Perth and I still had hopes to play for Western Australia and again my season and my numbers weren't good enough. So then I went back to England a little bit earlier and, and, and did the pre-season the last sort of month in March with Middlesex and I, I was guaranteed games at the start of the season. I, I played and again I did scored some runs um, and then it was about um, July and I was at a crossroads, um, Middlesex, I was doing well and I was averaging in, in the 50s in the second 11 and um, Mark O'Neill, who was um, the batting coach at Middlesex at the time, said, how are you going to make them sign you? And I sort of said, oh, I've just got to keep scoring runs. And Mark said, oh, I think if you speak to another county and get them keen, it means Middlesex can't just use you. And so I, I spoke to um, Giles um, White at Hampshire, who is the director of cricket there now, and he said, oh, yep, we'd love to have you. He, I knew him from my days at Melville. And he said, so I said to Middlesex, I want to go and trial at Hampshire. And they said, oh, give us one more week. We want you to play this game. Um, I said, okay, no worries. And so then that game, I went and got 180 against Gloucester second 11 and, and got given the contract that afternoon. So it's funny how it all turned out, and that's sort of a, a long story and a, and a medium-sized version of it. I could go into more detail, but I've probably gone into a fair bit of detail there. But that's how it sort of unfolded, that an Aussie boy from Central Australia ended up playing um, and getting a contract with one of the biggest clubs in, in uh, the UK. Yeah, and, it, and the thing which will always strike people from the, the outside is, yeah, it, if people were coming to play the county game from another country, there's... 18 counties and for the most part the grounds are as much as they're nice in their own ways 
fairly forgettable, but Middlesex, of course, playing at Lords, that then is is the the pinnacle really, and all the history and everything that's there. But I I don't I don't think I've come across too many routes to playing profession playing professionally in England like this. Um, again, like you've you've mentioned there about the pathway not being present there from your location in in central australia so then you've had to be creative and think about that the move to perth and the move over to the to the uk so at the time i would imagine if we're thinking in terms of adversity at that quite young age when you're saying you're 13 you're thinking right i want to play for australia and what am i going to do to do that you probably didn't view it as 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 adversity or, or a problem where you live you just got with the solution quite quickly then I guess as people get older the more our experiences form us and shape us then we carry that baggage a little bit more so what as we get get past the point of Middlesex are, are, are being keen that big score to get you then your foot in the door and get yourself as part of that group what things then started to be the big challenges and the things that you had to overcome once you'd achieved the the first part of your goal to actually get yourself there set up in the the pro game what occurred after that well it's it's really interesting and now that I'm a bit older and I've had a lot of time to reflect um it's it is and and what I've learned throughout that whole situation I now teach and pass on to other young um athletes and cricketers that are in a similar situation because for me I think once I got that contract and I got that sort of that title as a professional and the sort of responsibilities that came with it, I think I almost subconsciously relaxed and I thought, wow, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I now spend a lot of time with any young aspiring player. I really encourage them to dream big and never seek just to get in the team, but to dominate and do well. Because once you through my experience, once you get in, if that's all you're aiming for, then like, what's next? And some you can you can reset your goals, but I think if that's something you've been working towards for so long, and that's something that you, makes you get out of bed every morning, then it becomes very hard to change that once you're there. So I really say to players now, if you want to play, if you want to play for WA, you don't want to just play one game because once you're there, you don't want to say, all right, I'm done. You want to play a hundred games. So. That, for me, I think, looking back, I think I probably got there and thought, this is amazing, this is so cool, I love this, what a lifestyle, I've come, I'm at Lords, I've got me playing with some of the best players in the world, I'm getting paid, I'm living on the other side of the world, this is amazing, and it didn't stop me from working hard, and I worked my absolute backside off, but I think subconsciously and in my mindset, I'd almost reached where I needed to get to, and I think that really probably held me back from going um, and dominating and doing everything I needed to on and off the field um, to continue to become better and, and be the best I could be. So I guess that the 13-year-old you might have looked at, at what had happened and, and would have thought, why is it that you're not continuing to push and to say, well, actually, that goal of wanting to play for Australia, or even if that's refined to say, well, actually, I want to be someone who's potentially with the the passport than playing for England that yeah even if that's lost subconsciously or you're not doing things which then later on would be able to uh, to push you in that direction is generally only something people see after the at the time don't they after the event because 
when you've got that concert, you're thinking, well, yeah, this is one step. I've got a couple more steps, but you feel you're on that line. And it's really interesting to hear that later on you'd be thinking, oh, yeah, there's some signs there that I'm, it's not quite working. What's the big, the big difference then in terms of... I, I, I can appreciate on the pitch, yeah, of course, you're going to be facing consistently better standard of player, but what is it off the pitch that you might identify as being the thing which was the... The, the real challenge to adapt to playing for a living um, so just to just to sort of finish off that what we were just talking about and what you've touched on there I think another thing that really sort of held me back I believe in my performances and in, in the uh, in the UK and for Middlesex was although I signed a document saying I would I committed to England I, I was never really aspiring to play for England I always had that sort of time at Middlesex as a bit of, oh, this is a stepping stone for me to go back and play for WA and play for Australia. So I suppose that sort of subconscious thought or those sort of feelings of, okay, I'm not English, I, I don't deserve to play for England. I've grown up trying to play for Australia and I've grown up loving the baggy green. And so that, I think, also would have held me back. And I remember having a conversation with Steve Eskenazi, who's now a very good player at Middlesex. He's had a, a very successful six-year career there now, and he got signed by them the year after I got released, and he asked me um, for a coffee and asked me a few things, and I said, whatever you do, you've got to commit fully to being over there and trying to play for England, because I didn't. I always held myself back a little bit subconsciously from committing everything to then go on and play for England. So I think that was also a big factor where I was holding myself back to try and do well in Australia and maybe potentially giving more of my energy to grade cricket in Perth than I was for Middlesex. But to answer your most recent question, I think the biggest um, the biggest factor around it was that once I got signed, and I think I've seen this from a number of people before, you've suddenly got something to lose. I think before you get signed and, and before I got signed, I I played with such freedom. I played with a carefree attitude and um, I played with a real sort of enjoyment. And then... Once I got signed and I sort of got the contract, then it suddenly became mine to lose. And, I, I, and that really, I think, probably weighed on me at times, particularly in the last season when you're sort of paying for your contract to get another contract. When you've got a couple of years, you're not under as much pressure. And, um, and that sometimes makes people play well and brings the best out of them because they're in the last year of their contract and sometimes it puts the pressure on them and they, they don't play well. And... And I, I don't think I consciously worried about it, but I think a lot of things do happen on a subconscious level. I've mentioned that subconscious word a number of times already. I think that sort of is where our beliefs sort of sit and, and where we sort of truly live. Um, so I think that subconsciously I probably um, was putting myself under pressure. I don't want to lose this lifestyle. I don't want to lose this contract. And for me it was it was as much... Um, the lifestyle as uh, and the sort of the fact that I was, I just am a cricket nuffy. I love cricket, but the lifestyle of travelling around the country, playing against all these good players, and always being involved in the game every single day was something I loved, and I loved the game as well. Loved the contest. So I think the fact that before that it was just like okay, this is who can, like who's who can I prove to that I'm I'm really good and who can I show I'm good and I would express myself and then all of a sudden it became, right, I need to get in the team. I need to get it. Now I've got a contract. I need to get in the team. I need to stay in the team. How do I do this? And, oh, I don't want to lose that. Who, what's he doing? What's What are they doing? And your sort of mindset and outlook on on the game really does change and it did for me anyway. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's in, it is it's very a very persuasive point that 
perhaps the way that you've approached things to get to a particular point, then that attitude or that perspective is lost once you're actually there. And it, it's it's like so much when we've considered the mental side of the game or life in general that the the biggest challenge is, and in fact the only challenge anyone needs to worry about is what is happening at that very moment in time of what you need to do but we do as human beings get really clouded by external things that we can't control and I know one of your big things in your coaching is getting people just to consider what can you control do your very best to do that and the things that are outside of it just absolutely look after themselves so that's going along obviously a very competitive environment a lot of the guys that you've played with there at Middlesex, some people who've got tremendous records in the domestic and international game. As you came, as you were going through that that time there at, at Lords playing for Middlesex, on the journey to then leaving the pro game, was there anything that you could identify as being something which was was a step towards? departing or was it something that came all at once and you were taken aback and shocked by no I think I saw the writing on the wall I think Middlesex have always had a really big sort of squad or staff they've they've always had a number of um, very very good players it's not sort of it's one of the bigger counties and they've always had a big staff and, and it's always competitive and I feel like I got a few opportunities I feel like there were times I could have probably got more opportunities but there's probably no cricketer or athlete for that matter in a team sport that doesn't think they should have played at some point or another and um, the, the writing was it was clear I, I just didn't do well enough when I did get my opportunities I think um, I'm certainly not bitter by this fact, and like you say, I, I now teach all my players to only control the controllables, but the 2012 summer when I was in my last year, I think we lost about 32 or 33% of days of cricket through to rain, due to rain. It was an incredibly wet summer, and when you're in contract and, and things are going well, you actually, as a pro cricketer, you play a lot of cricket, and sometimes you, you don't mind a day off, and you don't mind it when it rains, but when you're out of contract and you're trying to sort of you know your, your your contract's on the line or your career's on the line you're desperate to play and sort of losing a lot of cricket through to bad weather and then when we would play we'd often play half a day on a on a tough wicket and it's certainly no excuse it's certainly not something I'm I'm bitter about at all it's just what happened it's just a fact and um when I sort of got into my review at the end of the season um it was almost probably about um 6 years ago to the day um, with Angus Fraser, I, I sort of, I sort of saw it coming, um, and in a funny way, uh, and I've probably never really said this in a in a funny way. I probably, although I remember sort of walking out of Angus's office and, and calling my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and and being a bit upset. Um, I sort of was also a bit relieved because I had I had played in the Perth in the Wackers comp the season before, and I'd scored the most runs in the Wacker comp. I'd I'd had a really really good year. I'd I'd scored um, 820 runs at an average of 82 and, and three big hundreds. And I'd played a second 11 game for Western Australia, classed as an overseas player because I pl- was a, a contracted Middlesex player at the time, at the end of the season leading into my last year with Middlesex. And so I sort of thought, all right, and, and I'm, I'm ever an optimist. I've sort of, the way I've been brought up and the way my brain's wide, I, I'm always looking for like the positive in things. And I thought right, I'm going to go back to Perth, I'm going to dominate and I'm going to play for WA. And that's something that I always wanted to do. That was something that was really at the core of what I was trying to do. And, and so when the moment I lost, lost my contract, 
I sort of reshifted my focus to right. I'm going to go back and and having been the best batter in the competition last season, I'm just going to go back and get it done again. And and unfortunately, that didn't pan out. I started the season poorly and and probably put myself under too much pressure and um, probably tried too hard, which I, I now know is is a really not a good thing to do. Um, but at the time, I was still young. I was 24, um, still learning a lot about myself and my game and. Um, and yeah, and so when that sort of losing my contract, I suppose it was really eased by the the, the thought and the idea that, I'll, okay, I'll go back and play in Australia. And I, I never, even though Middlesex is one of the bigger clubs and some of the guys who have been released from there have gone on to play at other clubs, and I never thought, right, I'm going to go and try and chase a Derbyshire or Leicestershire or somewhere a bit smaller and maybe a bit um, not easier to get into, but where there's a bit less competition. But I sort of refocused my, my sights to back playing in Australia and, and that, that helped with that sort of transition. Okay, so that, that adversity, I probably can just imagine a pretty horrible, daunting experience going into a meeting with someone and half an idea of what they're going to say and, and, and it's interesting that you say there, there's the, the relief attached to that. So you, your way of dealing with that adversity was just was to to refocus your attention to say, well, maybe going back to when you were 18 or so saying so, well actually now it's back to thinking about WA there's not the distraction if you like of, uh, of of county cricket there when was it as time passed from there from 24 onwards that you started to look more towards coaching as your as your main involvement with cricket because you're still playing you're still playing grade now and that will, of course, take up a lot of time, training, preparation. But it will be now. I, I guess you would ref, you would refer to yourself as a coach and a cricketer, but it's a coach first and foremost. Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when was it in that time after the the um, the contract with Middlesex expiring? When was it that you would then have thought, okay, I'm a, I'm a coach now? Very interesting, um, and if I, I, I can't really put a, a, a pinpoint time on it, I think it was sort of a natural progression. I think, like I've just touched on, I'm, I'm an ever an optimist, and I, there were always there were some signs here and there that I was I was on the right path. I was still improving. I was getting performances at the right time. Um, I, I, there was one sort of weekend or one sort of block of weekends where I scored three hundreds in three weeks, and I had a couple of meetings with Justin Langer, who was the coach at the time, and there was. Um, there was still that sort of opportunity there, but as as a cricketer, as you know, like you're only ever a couple of performances away from from being the the next guy in again. And I think it probably was later than later than most people. I probably still he- held onto some ambition even a few years ago. That maybe if I just got my shit together and everything clicked, and I got my mind, my emotion, my my physical skills, my technique, got it all got it together, working together at one, and then I peeled off three or four hundreds in a row. Then why couldn't I? still get an opportunity because I was fit enough I had the right character I believed and so I think it wasn't until probably a couple of years ago and and as I sort of started to dive deeply into cricket mentoring and and really spending more of my energy trying to help others than sort of probably that time and energy I would on bettering myself Um, and I still spend a lot of time bettering myself I still spend a lot of time training and and trying to get better because otherwise I, I, I'm wasting my time playing. I want to. I still want to perform on the field. I want to um, look back and say I gave everything and I had a good career and, and I, I was I was a decent enough player. But it was probably a couple of years ago we, we celebrated, Cricket Mentoring celebrated our second uh, birthday on the 2nd of August, so um, just over a month ago. And um, 
it was it was then that things really started to I really started to focus on the coaching side of things. I'd been coaching for about four years, uh, for about two years before that, and then so um, I launched the the brand Cricket Mentoring and, and started to really actively promote my services and our online content. And I really started to want to give back and help others. As I suppose I came to the realization that I was twenty eight and a bit older, and it was going to become much harder. And there was a lot of good young players around. Um, so I think it was probably around then, around the sort of the launch of the business that I that I realised, okay, now it's time to focus more of my energy. And if the cricket clicks and I go really well, you never know. I still still am an optimist, always an optimist. Um, but this is now what I'm really really passionate about is the coaching and the mentoring of athletes. Okay, yeah. Now when we look at a lot of measures of of good mental health or mental fitness. A key thing there is people being able to understand them themselves. So we were chatting just before this about someone of the the stature of Alistair Cook understanding within his game and, and outside of the game what works for him, what doesn't. I think for anyone listening here, your your ability to have been able to redefine what it is you're after from a lot of reflection and being honest with yourself is something that people can take in any walk of life you you often hear about people who leave a professional sport and they they leave that so far behind because they they don't want to interact with it they don't want to confront things that could have gone better things they might have done differently so to see your change from Middlesex to then still looking at doing whatever you could to to get involved with WA to then thinking that the, 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 the opportunity to to, to mentor and I suppose that's I see a lot more from that perspective than just say coaching can sound just like it's some guy barking instructions at you and telling you where to get your elbow and where your front foot should be whereas mentoring gives that impression and it certainly bears out in your work that it's a lot more about the whole person and this must be something which is really drawn from your experience of not necessarily just the professional game but but how you've um you experience a cricket f- full stop what would you say if you could summarize it relatively briefly there's not a word limit but you know if you could if you could capture it what would you describe your philosophy of coaching as um well i like you i think you've you've you know you know my sort of ideas and values from our time together in the uk so i think you've you've done a quite a good summary of it there but i i believe peak performance for any athlete um is a, is a holistic thing i think there's there's the technical aspect, there's the tactical aspect, there's the mental aspect, there's the emotional aspect, um, there's the physical aspect, and then there's the lifestyle. I think there's sort of six pillars that really have to to, to create um, peak performance consistently. I think you want all six of those things sort of going in the right direction. They don't all have to be at their optimal or peak level at all at, at once, but if they're all going okay, then I think that's, that's sort of um, where you, you can be at your best consistently. So for me, um, my philosophy is trying to help the the player or the person um, understand themselves better and understand their game better, um, so that they can they can get to their peak state more consistently. And I think that's what we're all chasing. We we can all be great on our day and when everything just clicks. But the best players and the best athletes, the best performers, the best anything in the world. Um, are able to do it consistently. They're able to go back to back. They don't. It's not that they don't fail. That everybody fails. Everybody makes mistakes. But they are able to work things out, problem solve, and and get back to their best quicker 
than the, the average person. And so for me, it's about trying to, I'm always trying to upskill myself in terms of all of those six aspects as well. I'm trying to always upskill myself on, on in my own mindset, but how I can then teach others to upskill their mindset and their thoughts and their, also their emotions and how they can understand and manage their emotions and their feelings and um, what they're doing in their lifestyle that may sort of hinder or help their um, their on-field performance. So for me, and, and it comes back to, like you sort of just touched on, it comes back to I'm trying to be the mentor I never had. I, I really believe that had I had someone who'd walked the path I was trying to walk and, and been there and, and done it, successfully or unsuccessfully um i could then learn from their mistakes and learn from their experiences and and go to them and say well i'm struggling at the moment what can i do or what would you suggest and even if they said read this book or um listen to this podcast or go and speak to this person or just back yourself or little things like that that i'm now trying to pass on to other players and just say it's okay to fail stop stressing just move on Mm -hmm. Um, if I had someone like that, I feel like my career could have been quite different because growing up in Alice Springs and then chasing and moving, I was always sort of on my own. I had some good coaches at times, but never a mentor, someone who I knew well and trusted and who knew me well. And that, I suppose, is my pain that I'm now trying to alleviate from others. I'm trying to help others really understand themselves better and be the person to go to and that the organisation, the brand, the business to go to when they want someone more than just a coach. Yeah, no, that's terrific. And with the theme that we've we've had running through this conversation of adversity, that can be with, with performance, but from our perspective, opening up thinking about people's mental health in general, one of the key things that people, maybe particularly blokes, sometimes really struggle to do is reach out to someone um, and, and get that help and I think those conversations that between player and mentor or, or coach whatever term they might use for it are just really good ways of acknowledging that people don't exist as islands and they need someone to bounce ideas off even just for the case of some reinforcement saying yeah you are doing the right thing or like you say maybe try something different um, last couple of things what in your experience in terms of your of cricket mentoring what is the motivation of the player to reach out and in, engage you in in work do they come usually from a position of strength or would it be that they're coming from a from a position of some adversity or setback that they're wanting to co- co- kind of recover from i think it's it, it's either one or two things i think it's either coming from a po- place of pain and they're struggling and they just are sick of failing or sick of not having the success they want and their their sort of results aren't meeting their expectations of themselves. So they, they really are, are saying, that, right, enough's enough. I need to invest in myself time, energy, money to get the results. I'm To get this training and upskill myself to get the results I really want to get or where I see. Or we have very ambitious athletes who think, I just want to become better. I just want to improve and learn. Even no matter what their results are, whether they're good or bad at that point in time, they they come to us or come to me because they they just want to improve and get better because they're ambitious and they're really serious about becoming the best they can be. Yeah, okay. And finally then, linked to, to all of this, Cricket Mentoring's got an incredible following across the world. I know when we've had conversations before and, and your inbox is jam-packed at any given time with messages from people in all well any cricket playing nation really 
I would say this is down to the fact that your approach is something which is quite often overlooked the, the the mental side the emotional side and so on but if you were to think from your just after the second birthday of cricket mentoring why would you think there's been such engagement across the globe for the the service that you're offering I think it's a couple of things I think it's you're right that we're talking about the mental and emotional skills that most people aren't um, most coaches aren't and and I think we're trying to educate athletes people that that is the reason why they're not having the success because I think so many people out there aren't having the success that they are having uh, they're wanting sorry um, but they go back to the nets and they try harder and try harder and they don't ever stop and think about the thoughts they're having and the emotions that they're going through while they're playing and we're trying to educate them and then they a light bulb probably goes off um, and says, oh, these guys are right. They know what they're talking about. That's what is I'm going through. But even before that, before we can educate them, we have to get their attention. And through a really aggressive sort of strategy on social media, we've been getting people's attention. We've been sort of um, very consistent with our, our content. We Right from the start of Cricket Mentoring two years ago, I was investing multiple hours a day on posts, and creating good, valuable, interesting content that I thought the our anyone um, who is now our audience would like. And our audience was much smaller then, or obviously we started on zero, but it's grown quite quickly due to consistently posting good content that is has nothing sort of to do with us trying to um, get have a self interest, but trying to give value to our audience. So it's the fact that we're talking about things that aren't spoken about as much, but we're also very, very consistent. And I think people can also see that we genuinely care. We re- try and reply to as many, or most, or as many of the messages and interactions as we can. We try and reply to comments. We try and reply to messages. We tr- try and reply to emails. Even though now it's becoming harder and harder as our community grows, we're getting thousands a week almost, and it's really, really becoming hard. But we're still trying to reply to as many as we can because I knew from the start there's an actual person sitting on the other end of that phone or that computer, someone who loves social media myself, somebody who spent a lot of time on social media. I knew and I'd get a thrill when someone I'd reach out to would reply. And so that's something I've tried to do. And like I say, it's going to become harder and harder um, as we grow and people are wanting our attention here, there and everywhere. So there's only one of me, even though I've got a couple of others assisting um, but that, I think, is what's allowed us to have sort of success online, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, there's a lot of authenticity in, in, in what you do there at Cricket Mentoring. And what I'll put on the... I'll put with the podcast the, the links to social media, but just as we finish, what's, where can people find you online? Um, we're on Instagram. We're really, really active. We post a few posts a day on the Instagram story regularly at Cricket Mentoring. Um, Facebook is the same. Just search Cricket Mentoring. We're on Twitter. We're starting to try and grow our t- um, followers on Twitter. We don't use it very often, but we're something we're, we haven't done, sorry, but we're, we're sort of starting to get back into. So that's at Cricket Mentoring. No G on the end. Um, and then on YouTube, Cricket Mentoring as well. We've got quite a big following on YouTube. I publish a, a vlog. Um, called Skulls Stories, where I document what I'm doing, uh, document my coaching, my playing, my speaking, my my whatever, um, and try and share that with our community as well and educate people through what I'm learning myself and what I'm teaching the athletes I'm working with. So any of those platforms, um, uh, yeah, you you can find us on. 
Great, and I'd certainly endorse that to anyone listening. Tom, thanks a bunch for joining me. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Cheers.